0: Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Well, good morning, City of Refuge. Uh, my name is Brandon Freemian, and I am the equipping pastor here at City of Refuge. So today we are continuing our series through Jesus' farewell address in John 13 through 17 And we've actually just finished the the first section of Jesus's farewell address. So the first part of it takes place uh, during the Last Supper, during where they're celebrating Passover. And you remember it started with Jesus washing the disciples' feet and setting for them this example of how they were supposed to serve one another, how they were supposed to care for one another after he was gone. And then a lot of His discussion during this section has been addressing that he is getting ready to go away and their distress at the fact that he's leaving. And he talks to them about this fear that they have that they're going to be alone. And Lionel preached last week about how Jesus says, no, you're not going to be alone. I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And there has been this recurring theme over and over and over again to love one another. And I think most poignantly, it's when Jesus says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This has been a recurring theme. And then at the end of this, he says, rise, let's go. And so evidently, everything we're about to read is taking place between what happened there at the supper table, and then we know in John 18 that they are going to be in the garden. So this is sort of a new section, but what Jesus is about to do, what Jesus is about to teach them is going to be very much in line with what he said so far. He's about to give them a metaphor to help them understand better what he has been teaching them about what life is going to look like when he is gone. Now, I want to get to that metaphor, but to help us understand it better, I actually want to start someplace else. I want to start in the Old Testament roots of where this image comes from that Jesus is about to give them. So I actually want to start, before we get into John 15, I want to go back to Isaiah 5. So we're going to go back to a prophecy of Isaiah. So this is hundreds of years before Jesus. And in this, Isaiah has been prophesying against Israel... And letting them know that God's judgment is coming. And here in Isaiah 5, we get this image of why God is judging Israel. So starting in 5.1, it says this. It says, Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So here, Isaiah gives this image of of God as someone who has been preparing a vineyard for himself. He's, He's done all of the work, he's cleared the land. He's planted the vines. He has has set up protection around this vineyard. He's put a watchman there to make sure that no one breaks in and and damages the grapes. Like, he has done all of this work, and now it is time for the fruit. And it says, he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, to, to explain what that means, I want to tell you a little story from my own family. So, we have a little garden in our backyard, and... Uh, Ellen and the boys planted a vine one time. They planted a grape vine, and over time it grew, and we got grapes. And the boys were very excited to try the grapes. And so they took them off, and they put them in their mouth, and they were the most bitter, kind of gritty, grainy grapes you had ever tasted. They were wild grapes. That's what he's talking about here that God had planted this beautiful vineyard. He'd put in all this work, and then he sort of gets to taste the fruit, and he goes, that's nasty. Now, why? Well, later on in Isaiah 5-7, he tells us some more about that fruit. He says this, "'For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting.'" And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So when God planted this vineyard, this vineyard of Israel, he had a particular fruit in mind. That they were supposed to bear the fruit of righteousness and the fruit of justice, right? They were supposed to be a people that would live in such a way that his justice, his goodness, his ways, his holiness would be lived out among them, and would be on display for all the nations to see. That was the fruit he was going for. And instead, what he got was violence. Instead, what he got was bloodshed. Instead, what he got was things being so bad that people were crying out about the evil that was being done. That is the wild grapes that he's experiencing from Israel In this season. Now, if you read the rest of Isaiah 5, it does not go well for the vineyard. And if you were to read Isaiah 5 in isolation, you would be tempted to say, well, so much for that idea, so much for God's vineyard which is why I think it's so striking. In John 15, in the middle of Jesus' farewell address, in the middle of him preparing them for the fact that he's getting ready to go to the cross, he turns to them and he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. You see, God had not given up on the dream of that vineyard God had not given up on his desire for a people that would bear the fruit of righteousness and justice. God had not forgotten about that. He was still after it, and now he was doing it in the person of Jesus, the new vineyard. So now let's turn to John 15. Jesus says, "I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser." He's going to give this image pulled, seemingly from Isaiah 5 to talk about now his relationship to his disciples and how we are supposed to relate to him. Now, if you're used to studying passages like "Out of Paul," or some of the narratives, This can be a little bit of a disconcerting passage because a lot of those passages are very linear. It's like, okay, this thought, then this thought, then this thought. This doesn't work that way. This is, there's a lot of repetition in this, a lot of like going over it again with different facets, different aspects. The image I have is almost like, have you ever seen a flower open in like, uh, what is that? Where open, you can see it like over a short amount of time, see a flower open. Time lapse. Thank you. Time-lapse, seeing a flower open in time-lapse, right? It's kind of like that, where, okay, you're going to see a first picture of it, and then you're going to see a little bit more, and a little more depth, and a little more texture, and a little more understand what's going on. That's the way this works. So the way, I'm just going to work our way through the passage and sort of talk about what are the different aspects of this picture of Jesus as the vine that he's trying to communicate to us. So he starts, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So he has laid out, okay, I'm the vine, my father is the vine dresser. Very consistent with what happens in Isaiah, where you have God, you have God the Father, working as the one who is tending to the vine. And he begins by talking about what is the work of the vine dresser? What is the work of the father? And he points to two things. He says that the the father is going to take away unfruitful branches, and then he is going to prune fruitful branches. Now, I don't know if you all have ever taken care of a vine or a fruit tree. We actually have two fruit trees in our front yard. And... I'm very sad because I think the ice storm may have killed them, but I'm still hoping. Um, But every spring, I have to prune our fruit trees. And when they're very young, they call it training the fruit trees. And you do two things. One, you look for things that are sickly or dead, and, and you cut those off. But you also look for seemingly looking healthy branches that are going to interfere with the fruitfulness of the plant, so you know a, a fruit tree will just tend to send branches all different directions, but you want it to bear fruit, and you want it to put a lot of the nutrients into its fruit rather into keeping all of these different branches alive. And so, if there's like a branch that's growing inward, you, you cut that off. You want to make sure that, the, that there's some heavy branches so that it can bear a lot of fruit and not break the tree. So you have to think about what are the primary branches that you want to keep up. And you, and you cut away at things that look like healthy branches because you are seeking to increase the fruitfulness of that tree. And that's what the Father is doing here to the vine. Now, he talks about this idea of cutting off the unfruitful branches. Now, what is that about? Well, if you go through the Gospel of John, there's this recurring theme where you have a bunch of people who are following Jesus. You've got a bunch of people who seem to believe in Jesus. They even call them disciples. And yet, there's this constant question in the Gospel of John. Really? You really believe? Are you really a disciple of Jesus? Really? I think a great place to see that is in John 6. There's this place in John 6 where where Jesus teaches, and it's a particularly hard teaching, one that's kind of a little bit of a bitter pill to swallow and offends a bunch of people, and a bunch of people who they call his disciples turn away. And there's, there's a lot of that in John, where there seems to be these moments where Jesus sort of confronts people about, are they really a follower of Of Jesus, are they really following me or not? And you see them get cut off. Those are the unfruitful branches that you see playing out over the course of John. But he also talks about the fruitful branches that are being pruned. And he seems to be saying, this is happening to you. He's talking to the disciples. And he says this to them. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, that's a little bit of a A weird phrase that you may not, well, anyway, cleaning is not about scrubbing and getting clean, getting dirt off. Cleaning is another name for pruning. So what he's basically saying is, you guys have already been pruned because of my word. So what he is saying there is that throughout Jesus' ministry, his word, what he's been teaching them, because the Father was doing this through his word, was working in their lives. It was molding them, shaping them, correcting them, Pushing them to develop in their faith and their love, and confronting their expectations of who Jesus was, and moving them closer and closer into being a, a true follower of Jesus. This was the work of the Father using the Word of the Son. I think a, a good parallel is what you see in in Hebrews twelve. In Hebrews twelve, it talks about the fact that one of the works that the Father is going to do in our life is the work of discipline, that He is going to actively seek to move us more towards Christ-likeness. It's kind of the same thing. It's, It's the Father, through the Word, pruning us so that we will be more fruitful. And I think this actually goes all the way back. We were talking about Isaiah, right? One of the things we saw in that passage is that God is going to do what it takes to care for the vine, to care for the vineyard. He's going to do the work to make sure that the fruit happens and that he does that because he loves the vineyard. That whole passage in Isaiah 5 started with the fact that this was a love song to his vineyard. I say all that because this process of pruning, this process of discipline, the process of the Father using the word to draw us into a closer relationship with Jesus is not always a fun or painless process, right? It's not fun when there's aspects of our lives where we have sin that has to be confronted and cut off. It's not fun when we have something that we think is is healthy or good in our life, and God is like, actually, this is preventing you from really being fruitful and cuts it away. But these are things that he does out of love for us. Okay, so that's the work of the Father, is cutting away unfruitful branches and pruning the branches. So let's continue in verse 4. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So here we see the central command that Jesus gives in this image, which is the the command to abide. He says his disciples should abide in him, those who follow him should abide in him, And unless you do, you cannot bear fruit. In fact, he goes so far as to say, you can do nothing unless you abide in me. Now, that actually makes a ton of sense in this image, okay? So I want you to imagine for just a second, you have a a vine, you've got a branch, and you cut off the branch. How much fruit is that branch going to bear? Nothing, because that branch is dead, is just dead. And that's what he says here, is if you are not connected to the vine, you're not bearing fruit. Not only that, you're dead. Because the branch has no capacity to nourish itself. The branch has no capacity to to do anything separate from the nourishment, the support of the vine. And he's saying, I am that for you. You must abide in me. You must remain in me. You must stay with me. If you are going to bear fruit. Now he has not talked yet. Okay, what is? How do you do that? What does abiding mean? How do you do that? He just says he's just pointing out here why it is important for us to abide in Him. Because if we're to be fruitful, if we're to be alive, we have to stay abiding in Him. And I think it's important because what is the direction of the action here? Right. The direction of the action is he doesn't tell them, hey, you guys go bear fruit. Instead, what he tells them is, hey, you abide in me, and fruit is going to be the natural result of that. Our action as Christians is to pursue abiding in Christ, and he seems to be saying here, fruit is going to come because we are connected to the vine and because the Father is doing this work of pruning us so that we will be fruitful. All right, 15.8. He's he's told us we must abide in him, and then he says this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear must fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. I think there's a question that hasn't really been answered yet. Why does God care so much about this fruit? He was after it in Isaiah 5. He's evidently after it still. He has done an incredible amount of work to get it. Why is this so important to him? What does he say here? By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I think there's two things going on here that's related to our fruit. The first is worship, and the second is proclamation. So he says here that by this, the Father is glorified. Right? That when we bear this fruit, this fruit of righteousness, this fruit of justice, the end result of that is that God gets the glory. Why? Because he's the one that's been planting the vine and pruning it and, and providing the nourishment so that the fruit is there. Right? It's his fruit, ultimately. He is the one that has done all the work so that this fruit is born. And so when that fruit happens, he gets the glory. Which means this is true, then I think that our fruit, this fruitfulness of righteousness, this fruitfulness of justice that we're supposed to bear, is our primary act of worship. Yes, what we do here on Sunday morning is absolutely a part of that. But this is getting at worship seven days a week, right, is this fruit that we are bearing for God. So that's the first part and why it is so important to him is because this is a a major part of how he is glorified. The second is proclamation, right? And This is the part, and so prove to be my disciples. And this was something going back to Isaiah 5, right? What was going on was not just, okay, it'd be great if you guys were living righteously and justly together, but they were supposed to be doing that so that the other nations around them would look out, look in at what was going on there and say, hey, there is something unique and beautiful happening there, and we want to know that God, And the same thing is true for us that, that the, the, the way that we live out, the way that we bear this fruit of righteousness and justice in our lives has a, a proclamation aspect of it where, where people should look in at what is going on in the church and be like, I'm not sure I understand that, but my goodness is that amazing and good and beautiful. And I want to know, I want to know how to be part of that vine. Right? That is the, the proclamation part of it. And so I think those two pieces of it are why God cares so much about the fruit, why he's after it. In that vein, I want to, to break a little bit from just working through this passage because down in, in 15, 16, I think there's, there's something important to emphasize there. In 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. So he is saying here that this fruit is not just good fruit. It's fruit that's going to remain. It's going to abide. It's going to stay. If you abide in Christ, the fruit that you have is also going to abide. What does that mean? I certainly think that speaks to the, the present impactfulness of that fruit. But I think there's also something that is eternal in what he's talking about here. So certainly in that proclamation part of it, right, as we are bearing fruit and if people are truly becoming a part of the vine and people are becoming saved and coming into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, those are now people that we'll see in eternity, right? That is fruit that is abiding. But I think there's also even something beyond that. And for that, I actually want to turn to Revelations real quick. Revelation 19, we're going to be looking at verses 7 and 8. So in Revelation 19, we have this wonderful picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right? Is this picture of the moment when the church is finally brought into this kind of this final relationship with Jesus? Verse 7. This is a picture of that moment. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has, been made, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So we have this picture of the bride that has been made ready for Christ. And, and she is just adorned in this beautiful, pure linen, bright. And what is that? What is that pure, bright linen? for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Notice the tie back to that, what God was looking for in the fruit in Isaiah five, justice and righteousness, right? This fruit that now Jesus is talking about his disciples bearing. We see here in the final picture that that is the thing that is adorning the bride of Christ at the end. I have no idea how this works, what this exactly looks like, but what, This is saying is in some form or fashion, this fruit that we're bearing, this righteousness, these, these deeds of righteousness and justice that we're doing, somehow in eternity, that is going to make us look magnificent for Jesus Christ. That is fruit that is abiding into eternity. Again, don't know how that's going to play out. I am looking forward to finding out someday. But I think it, for me, provides such a beautiful picture of not just why this fruit matters to God, but why it should matter to us. So, there's the call to abide, and now we've seen kind of the purpose of this fruit. So then, what does it mean to abide? Let's go back to John 15, starting in verse 9. So, what does it mean to abide? He says, abide in my love. How do you do that if you keep my commandments? So, what he points to as, how do you go about abiding with me? He says, walk in obedience to the things that I have taught you. And what is the substance of that? Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another As I have loved you, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. A picture that probably at the time they didn't totally know what he was talking about, but I'm guessing on the other side of the cross, my goodness, would those words have resonated. This is what it looks like to abide, is to follow Jesus' commands with the heart of that being sacrificial love, A laying down our lives for one another. And that's what he says it's going to be to abide in him. Not just about our physical lives as it was with Jesus, but also living in ways that are costly in the ways that we serve each other and lay down our lives for each other. Costly in time, costly in money, thoughts, concern, emotional energy. These are all the ways that we lay down our lives for each other. You know, one of the things that really resonated with me as I was studying this passage, this year we've been talking about how we as a church are supposed to be promoting unity and love in the midst of diversity. And it's one of the reasons we did this series, and you may be wondering why. There hasn't been a whole lot on unity talked about in any of these passages. He's going to get there. He's going to talk about it explicitly. It's coming. But when I study this, and I hear Jesus laying out that the central thing that it's going to look like for you as a church, as you as individuals, to abide in me and to bear fruit is sacrificial love for one another. Then I have to believe that he is giving us here one of the absolute most essential keys, one of the central things that we will have to do if we are ever going to Get unity in the midst of diversity in our church. Like, this is what it is going to take for us to pursue that together. This is what we are going to need to have happening in our, both individually and collectively, as we encounter the differences that might divide us. So that was one thing that was very much on my heart as I was studying this. But the other one that really stood out to me for our church right now is verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. I think when we hear, okay, Jesus wants me to self-sacrifice for others, our natural tendency might be to draw away from that a little bit. I think in particular, to draw away from that a little bit, because I don't know about you, but the last year and a half has felt costly in a lot of different ways. And Jesus says, I am teaching you this. I'm telling you this. I am drawing you this metaphor. I'm telling you to abide in me in this way, because that is where joy is found. I had to ask myself, do I actually believe that? Do I actually believe that this life of fruitfulness, this this sacrificial love as a way of life, is actually what is going to lead to the fullness of my joy? Because to be honest, self-sacrificing love does not always feel good or joyful in the moment. Sometimes it does. It's great when it does, but it doesn't always. Sometimes it really hurts because self-sacrificing love is costly. So I was thinking about that. Do I really believe this? And I was, I was thinking about, you know, I think what Jesus is getting at here is that there are some deep joys that only come on the other side of self-sacrificing love. Like he is talking about here the joy that we receive as a gift from God. This is something that I believe the Father does in us. He's talking about here about the joy that we have and the knowledge of heaven and the fact that someday that we are going to be with the Son and with our brothers and sisters, in eternity and perfection. like That is the level of joy he's talking about. He's he's talking about the joy of knowing that what we are doing, even if it is costly in the moment, we come to the place where we know that this is worshipful to our Heavenly Father who we love dearly. And even beyond that, I think there are so many of the joys of our life that only come from long-term sacrificing and commitment. I mean, have you had a friendship that was really deep and true, one where you were really pouring into each other's lives and helping each other to grow in Christ that did not involve a certain level of self-sacrificing love? Can a marriage or a parenting relationship really be rich and full? Can it really be joyful without a high level of self-sacrificing love for one another? Like, these are the deep joys of life. And what I think Jesus is drawing his disciples in and drawing us to is if you really want to pursue joy, it's through this, through self-sacrificing love. And, I, and I, I, I bring that up for our church because I have seen so much from our church in terms of us laying down our lives for each other in the last year. And I really want to commend this church for that. And I want to encourage you that when it comes to that, maybe you haven't experienced the joy yet. But though weeping may endure for the night, joy will come in the morning. And this is an additional promise that that is true. So if you have been struggling for joy in this season, I want you to take verse 11 to heart. And to continue to press into self-sacrificing love for one another, knowing that Jesus said, down that path, there's real joy. So I hope as we walk away from this passage, it's kind of big, one, three big takeaways that I have for us. One is that we would continue to submit to the Father's pruning in our lives in this season. Two would be that we would commit ourselves to continue to pursue sacrificial love of one another. And three would be that we would do that with expectancy, that from that, that the Father is going to both bring great fruit and also will bring our own joy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that there's so much in this passage about the work that you are doing. There's so much of this, God, that is in your hands, and we know that you are good and that you love us and that you are pursuing our best interests. So I I do pray, God, that you would be doing the work of pruning in our lives. Lord, I pray for myself and any of those in the congregation who may be struggling with joy right now. I pray, God that you would give us faith to believe the words of Jesus and that you would help us to live into sacrificial love for one another. We love you and give you all the praise and the glory in your name. Amen.